All right, thank you, choir. Worshipful song. We've been in a series on the apostles, and I thought it would conclude at 12. Last week, though, I added Matthias because he was the 13th apostle who replaced Judas Iscariot. And then I got to thinking that there was one more who claimed an apostleship in almost every letter of the New Testament, and that was the Apostle Paul. And honestly, I was afraid I might have to contend with him one day in heaven if I did not acknowledge his apostleship. And believe me, Paul is not someone you would want to get into an argument with. Because among many things Paul argues in his letters, first and foremost was his authority as an apostle. And he goes back to the conversion experience on the Damascus Road. And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And then Paul gives his testimony in Acts 22 and repeats it, and in Acts 26 and repeats it. And in the first chapter of Galatians, Paul is arguing his apostleship, and he gives his testimony again recounting the Damascus Road experience. But Acts 9 is the initial uh, event itself, and that's what we want to look at this morning. And then what it meant for Paul, and what it meant for the Christian church as a result. Acts 9, 1 through 19, the sermon is entitled, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he refers to himself so often. But Saul still, remember he was called Saul before Damascus Road. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way was what the early Christians were called. Sometimes they were called Nazarenes, followers of Jesus of Nazareth, sometimes people of the way. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me 
that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. And for several days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Pray with me. Father, as we read this account of Saul on the Damascus road, and we realize the transformation that took place that day in the years that followed in his life, and what he did for you and your kingdom during his lifetime as a result, we are ashamed that we are not better imitators of him who imitated Jesus who was obedient to the Father. So help us let down our guard and give all that we are and have to Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. So as I said, I am convinced that if I did not include Paul in a series on the apostles, I would have to face him one day in heaven. And that's not a pleasant thought. Because among the many things Paul argued, first and foremost was his authority as an apostle called by Jesus Christ. Following Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension, Paul helped chart the course of the Christian church as it was being established. And there were people in that day who did not like Paul and did not like what he was saying and he would come and preach to them and they would say, who are you? By what authority do you come and tell us to do this? Who put you in charge? And Paul would have to back up and defend his apostleship of Jesus on the basis of our Lord's appearance to him and the call he placed on his life on this road to Damascus. 19 times, 19 times Paul calls himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and argues his claims as such. But we'll get to that in a minute. I want to start at the beginning because with Paul, with, with many of the apostles, we didn't have very much information, very much material about them at all. But with Paul, we have more material about Paul than almost anybody else in the New Testament except Jesus. Paul is second in influence in the New Testament, second, of course, to Jesus. And so we got to sort through all the material about Paul and summarize it here this morning. Let's back up to where his name is Saul prior to Damascus Road. And I looked up as much as I could find about the physical appearance of this fiery individual in the early church. Saul, by all accounts, was a short, stocky fellow with a balding head, crooked nose, and bulging eyes, is how many uh, early church histories portray him. In other words, Poor Paul just wasn't very much to look at. He may have suffered, because of the description of having bulging eyes, it occurred to me that he may have suffered with a terrible eye infection throughout his life. And do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talked about a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that the Lord would relieve him of. I can't help but think about that eye infection that may well have been the thorn in the flesh because you know if you've had anything wrong with your eyes, you hurt all over, don't you? You're miserable all over. He prayed that God would remove it, but it did not. 
And so that would also explain the fact why with most of his letters, Paul did not write them himself, but he used an amanuensis, which means a scribe. Paul would dictate the letters and someone else would write them down. And when Paul did write something, he would say at the conclusion of a letter, see with what large letters I write by my own hand. Maybe Paul wrote with large letters because he was so, so badly nearsighted or, or had such a terrible eye infection uh, that that's the only way he could see it. But in that small, frail frame of a man, there was a fire lit by the Spirit of God combined with a brilliant mind and eloquence of speech that could sway the masses. Saul was from Tarsus. Tarsus on the map, if you look at it, is around, it's on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Tarsus was a cultural center. It was a university center. And there was also the center of, of Greek philosophy there called Stoicism. So the Stoic philosophy was established in Tarsus and Paul was well familiar with, with uh, Greek philosophy and the arguments that ensued. It's significant that Paul, being born in Tarsus, was a freeborn Roman citizen because that meant that he had protection from scourgings, even though he got some anyway, he, he was not supposed to have as a Roman citizen. And then in any court of law, if he was not happy with the sentence, he could always appeal to the higher court at Rome. Any Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar, which explains why Paul, when he was being tried in Jerusalem, appealed to Caesar, and they had to take him one last time to Rome. But Paul was also a Jew, but not just any Jew. Paul was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, but not just any member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. Paul was a star student of the eminent rabbi Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of his day. Paul was his star pupil. Paul was fluent in Greek, in Hebrew, and probably Latin. He was at the top of the pecking order in Judaism, and he was destined for even greater things as he climbed the ladder of success. As a student of Gamaliel and as a Pharisee, Paul was required to learn a trade so that he could teach without being a burden on the people so that no one could accuse him of just teaching to make money. And so Paul learned the trade of making tents from goat's hair cloth, which was a popular trade there in Tarsus and one that kept him financially viable throughout his ministry. The road to greater influence among the Jews to climbing the Jewish ladder of success meant scrupulously obeying the Jewish law, every letter of it, and vigorously protecting it from any challenge to their authority or way of life. And that meant for Paul persecuting the fledgling Christian church which the Jews viewed as an aberration, as a heresy of Judaism. Paul is first mentioned in the New Testament as a young man, about 30 years of age perhaps. He's holding the garments and approving of those who are stoning Stephen in Acts 7, verses 58 through 60. Following that, his zeal increased as he showed absolutely no mercy in hunting down Christians who were in that day either called people of the way or Nazarenes. 
He was arresting them. He was putting them on trial for heresy and he was doing everything in his power to destroy the Christian church before it ever got off the ground. Paul was continuing his vehement persecution of the church armed with letters of authority from the high priest in Jerusalem. One of the most important days in the history of the church took place on the way to Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus, and if you look at a map, Damascus is about 50 miles northeast of Galilee. Galilee is about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. So Paul was journeying about 100 miles toward Damascus by foot or by donkey. It's about a six days journey. Towards the end of the journey, perhaps the sixth day, it was midday. The sun was at its height beating down on them. And a bright light shone around them and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice in Hebrew saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul recounts in his testimony in chapter 26 that the voice also said, it hurts you to kick against the goads or to kick against the pricks. Do you know what those are? In that day when they trained teams of of oxen or cows to pull a plow or to pull a cart, they would put a stick behind their, their hind legs that had spikes sticking out of them. And those spikes were called pricks or goads. And originally when, a, when oxen or cow were harnessed together, they would try to kick out of that harness and their hind legs would end up hitting that spike in the back of their legs. And eventually they learned not to, to kick, not to try to break loose or break free from the harness and to settle down and pull the cart or pull the, the plow as they were supposed to. So Jesus is asking Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting me? And in today's language, we might say, why, are you, why do you keep beating your head against a brick wall? Paul fighting this call of Jesus will only cause you additional pain. Now, there's been a lot of debate over where this heavenly vision on the road to Damascus came totally as a bolt from the blue or whether God had been preparing Paul for it all along, leading up to this experience. I tend to think that there were experiences in Paul's life that were preparing him for this transformational moment in his life. And here's some things I thought of. First of all, Paul had already spent his entire life trying to live up to the letter of the law and he found it impossible. There's no way to please God by scrupulously observing the law. Paul realized that was uh, just an endless, endless task. Also, Paul had a future friend and traveling companion named Barnabas who also coincidentally knew the art of tent making. So maybe Barnabas grew up in Tarsus as well. And he may have influenced Paul somewhere along the way because he's Barnabas the encourager. Also, there's the fact that Paul's teacher was Gamaliel and he was the eminent rabbi, but remember it was Gamaliel in Acts chapter five when the priests came together and said, what shall we do about this church? Gamaliel was the one who stepped forward and sounded a note for taking a softer tone toward Christianity. He said, brothers and sisters, I would suggest that we do nothing. 
Because if it is of man, it will fail. And if it is of God, you and I will not stop it. And you might just find yourself opposing a work of God. So Gamaliel said, rather than persecuting Christianity, let's let it rise or fall on its own. But I think one thing that really impacted Paul was the stoning of Stephen. He was standing there watching the face of Stephen as he died. And rather than lashing out in anger, Stephen echoed some of the words that Jesus had given from the cross. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I've got to think that somehow that sank into Paul's inner being and over time he thought about that and the expression and the forgiveness that Stephen showed. And all those factors working together, knowing what Paul was, knowing what he was going to have to do when he got to Damascus came together and intersected at this critical juncture of Paul's life when he was already perhaps beginning to doubt whether all the things he had been taught and spent his life defending were really true. And then Saul saw Jesus. Remember, it was a requirement for apostleship in Acts chapter 1 when they were replacing Judas Iscariot and they had to choose between um, Matthias and the other one. The requirement for being an apostle was you had to be a witness of the resurrected Lord. And so Paul, in defending his apostleship in the first chapter of Galatians, he argued vigorously that he saw Jesus and that he heard his voice in the miracle that happened on the road to Damascus. That was Paul's authority as an apostle. I was a witness to the resurrected Lord because he revealed himself to me and I heard his voice on the road to Damascus, Paul argued. Now let me step aside here and say a little parenthetical remark. There were some, there will be some who will argue for predestination here that said, look, Saul had no choice. God chose him, knocked him to the ground, called him, and Paul had to respond. No choice in the matter. And I would respond, really? Have you never known someone who heard from God and yet disobeyed? Have you never known someone in whom God worked an obvious miracle and yet it made absolutely no difference in their lives? I know a young man in my last church who had a critical, life-threatening illness and the doctors basically said they didn't know what else to do. They used all the treatments, all the therapies, all the chemicals they knew of and the prognosis was not good. People all over town began praying and this young man recovered miraculously. Even the doctors attributed his recovery to a work of God. They could not explain it any other way. You would think such a miracle would make some difference in that young man's life. But it didn't. He returned to living exactly the way he did before, as has his family. Paul could have recovered his sight there in Damascus on that street called Straight and thought, wow, what a crazy hallucination. Did any of you other guys see that? No, we didn't see a thing. We didn't hear a voice. That's what I thought. And Paul could have gone on with his life as before, as many people do. Because let's face it, as with most miracles, it takes 
eyes of faith to see it for what it is and give God the glory. And if you don't have eyes of faith, then a miracle is nothing more than a coincidence, than an hallucination, than a moment of temporary insanity. But Paul knew immediately who it was. It's a funny question. He says, who are you, Lord? Have you ever thought about that? Obviously, he knew if he, if he didn't know who he was, he would have just said, who are you? <laughs> but he said, who are you, Lord? He knew who he was, obviously, by calling his name. His first question was who? And his second question in Acts 22 was what? What do you want me to do? It always who is followed by what? What would you have me do? That's the proper sequence. Once he recognized who Jesus was, he asked him what he wanted him to do. And now notice here the difference between Paul and the original 12. The original 12 had accompanied Jesus for almost three years and grew slowly in their understanding and, and development of thought about who he was and the Messiah and his identity. But even then it didn't sink in until after his resurrection, they put it together in retrospect that he had prophesied all these things. But with Paul, it was different. With Paul, the recognition of who Jesus was was instantaneous and complete. Lord, who are you? Lord, I know who you are. What do you want me to do? And then began what I believe is the real miracle. Not the Damascus Road experience. That was a miracle, yes. But an even greater miracle, if you stop and think about it, was the complete and radical transformation that Paul had to undergo from being Saul. Think about it. Paul had to relearn everything about the Messiah. He had to come to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah, not the Messiah that the Jewish nation had always been anticipating and looking for. The second thing that Paul had to come to terms with was the fact that we do not approach God on the basis of works of law, which was what he had been attempting his entire life and teaching and persecuting anyone who believed otherwise. Paul had to come to terms with the fact that the only way to approach God is as sinners who had been forgiven. That may not seem like a big deal until you realize that all of Paul's life, <laughs> he had been teaching the opposite and persecuting anyone who believed differently. It was a dramatic change that Paul had to undergo, and it did not happen all at once. Because we learn in Galatians 1, the Galatians argue, yeah, Paul, you just learned all that from the apostles. Paul said, no, <coughs> excuse me. He said, three years after Damascus, I went into Arabia. Let me read it to you. Galatians 1, verses 17 and 18. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Paul had to go into the desert for three years to absorb what this change meant in his life. They're called the silent years by most commentators. What was he doing in that three-year sabbatical? 
He was rethinking everything he had ever been taught, processing what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus, developing an understanding of the gospel and its implications for the future of the church. And then he returns to Jerusalem. Think about that. Three years earlier, he had papers in his hand from the chief priest heading to Damascus to persecute followers of the way. Three years later, he returns and he starts preaching to those rabbis who had sent him on his way, presenting to them the gospel to no avail. And then he began his ministry, a ministry for which Paul was perfectly designed by birth, by education, by experience to fulfill. No one else could have done it the way Paul did it. Perfectly prepared. The first half of the book of Acts is all about Peter's mission to the Jews. The last half of the book of Acts is all about Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Paul tried to preach to the Jews. He always went to the Jews first. And when rejected, then he took the gospel to the Gentiles. And when Paul began his missionary journeys, three missionary journeys covering about 10 years' time and about 8,100 miles total. When he wasn't with those churches, he was writing letters to them. And Paul's method was to go to a city and usually to an established synagogue. And he would preach in that synagogue how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, how he was the Messiah. And when he was rejected, then he would go out and establish a church and then leave that church and let that church filter out into the surrounding communities. Time was short, so he went to the next city and established a church and another city and established a church. And then when he ended up in prison, he wrote letters to those churches. When he couldn't go and work anymore personally, he wrote letters encouraging the churches, hearing where they were getting off track, misunderstandings, misinterpretations of scripture, and he would write to correct them. His influence from those three missionary journeys and the letters he wrote to the churches helped chart the course of the future of the church. Primarily this, Paul's theme was salvation by grace through faith. And faith alone, works of law will accomplish nothing. It is salvation by grace through faith. It is everything. Other missionaries have gone and opened up continents to the gospel. Paul opened up the entire world. He was no respecter of persons. He was willing to be a servant of all and that in some way he might save some. He underwent persecutions and beatings and stonings, left for dead, driven out of cities, all the while supporting himself by making tents, sacrificing his pleasures, his ease, his safety, his leisure. He was in prison multiple times. And not only was he held in prison, but he was usually chained to a Roman guard while being held in prison, which Paul turned into a blessing. What do you think happened to those guards who found themselves chained to Paul for eight hours? How would you like to be chained to Paul for eight hours? He preached to them. And when he wasn't preaching, he was writing letters and reading it to them. It was a constant succession of guards in chains exposed to the gospel. What else could they do but listen? And many of them were saved. They didn't stand a chance. <laughs> and with that time on his hands, Paul wrote 
letters from prison, the Philippians, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Philemon. And the resounding note is remarkable. The resounding note of those letters, sitting in prison, chained to a guard, the resounding note is one of joy. Being deemed worthy to suffer for Jesus. Joy. He taught over and over that you were saved by faith. And once you are saved, it ought to affect how you live. There ought to be some kind of moral ethics and, and Christian behavior that follows your salvation. And I could go on and on about Paul and not even scratch the surface. He took the gospel handed down by Jesus and interpreted it for the Christian church and for the world at large. Of the 27 books we have in the New Testament, over half of them are attributed to Paul in his writings. Were it not for Paul, I was trying to think what would happen if Paul had not, had not come along, if he had refused to be a servant of God. Well, the first thing that would have happened is that God would have used someone else to accomplish his purpose because the purposes of God will not be thwarted. But had that not occurred, I think the early Christian church could have very easily morphed back into Judaism and disappeared from the face of the earth because already the early church was trying to incorporate things from Judaism into its observance and into its practices. And every time Paul got word of it, he said, no, you don't have to do that to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith. Jesus Christ, death on the cross is sufficient once and for all, for all men. Add nothing to that. Take nothing away from that. Salvation by grace through faith. God used Paul to get the church on its proper footing and set in its proper direction, which it has followed ever since. And I was thinking about maybe Paul's theme verse, if I had to come up with one, might be Ephesians 2.8, where Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus and he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. When you get a hold of that, when that truth sinks in, like that commercial Moultrie Tech puts on TV, that changes everything. Salvation by grace through faith. Where would we have been today without Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ? I shudder to think. But thanks be to God, there was a man named Paul who came along and was perfectly trained and prepared in Judaism, who heard the gospel and believed it and responded with reckless abandon and then used all that knowledge and training from his past to argue forcefully for the cause of Christ and the gospel of Jesus and help the church get set on the proper course, taking the gospel which Jesus had given and providing the path that we should follow. Why haven't there been more people like Paul to come along? Why aren't there folks like Paul today? I don't think it's because God doesn't call us. 
And I don't think it's because God doesn't want to use us. I think you and I have as much of Jesus as we want. And God uses as much of us as we will allow. Paul was one of those who sold out. And the difference he made for the kingdom still continues to this day. And God can do the same thing through you and me if we will let go and let him have authority over us. Let's bow together. Father, the example of the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle because he saw you and heard you on the road to Damascus and claimed that authority in the letters he wrote, in the churches he established, in the correction he made to the various heresies that were creeping into the early church to keep us on the right path. We thank you that there was someone like him in that day 2,000 years ago and that he let you have control. He chose to get out of the way and let you work through him. And I believe, God, that there are people with gifts today that are perfectly prepared to serve you in ways that no one else can if they will just allow you to have control. And so, Father, help us decrease so you might increase. Help us trust you and love you enough to get out of your way. Do what you want to do, God through any of us here this day. Forgive us, cleanse us, and use us in a powerful way in this community, in this state, and around the world. The possibilities are limitless. You, working through the Holy Spirit, can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.